Hi, I'm Alex, and welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the businesses behind the stock, as well as looking at mental models in order to help you become a better investor. Let's go. Welcome to the show. Again, my name is Alex and I am your stock storyteller and host of the Stock Stories Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. If you're new to the show, welcome. This is definitely the place where investors can come to learn and grow their knowledge and gain some insight into different companies and mental models. So I'm really happy to bring another company to you today. Now, if you recall, last week we talked about Marriott Vacations Worldwide, and so that was an interesting foray into the timeshare industry. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go ahead and check it out. Today, we're going to talk about yet another spinoff of Marriott International, which we talked about in episode 135. We're going to talk about host hotels and resorts corporation, and this is a company that actually owns the hotels that Marriott uses. So remember in Marriott episode, Marriott created the system and basically acts as kind of like a, a franchiser of their brand, whereas they don't actually own the real estate. Well, I started thinking, well, what about the company that owns the real estate? How are they doing? And so that leads us to this episode. Let's go ahead and get right into it and talk about hosts, hotels, and resorts. All right, let's talk about host hotels and resorts, ticker symbol HST. So the company's origins start with two brothers in Kansas City, Missouri in the late 1800s, and they were known as the Van Noy brothers. In 1897, Ira Clinton Van Noy, Charles S. Horace Greeley, and Henry Van Noy formed what was then known as the Van Noy Railway News and Hotel Company. So at this time in America's history, railroads were a big deal. They were a huge growth industry, and they provided pretty much the fastest means to transport people and goods that was available. And this really facilitated trade, economic growth, and also population growth in many areas of the country. I mean, imagine the world before you even had railroads. I mean, people didn't even have cars yet, let alone planes. So in order to travel from one place to another, you pretty much had to either walk on foot or ride a horse. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of of difficulties with that over long distances. So railroads were really, really big. And I definitely hope to get into some of the railroad companies Uh, later on in this podcast in future episodes. But the reason that I bring this up is that 
this company, the Van Noy Railway News and Hotel Company, they basically existed because the railroads were thriving. Because the brothers ended up setting up shop along the rail lines and they created these retail and hotel businesses to serve different travelers. So that's really how they got going. Now, many decades passed and the company changed and they changed names and changed ownership and eventually they became host hotels and resorts. But basically they expanded to own different restaurants as well as the hotel business. Now, fast forward to 1982, so many years later. So Host is this big company. They're making a lot of money with airport terminal food. They were really big in that business. And Marriott comes along and is interested in that business and decides that they want to acquire it. So as we discussed in the previous episode for Marriott International, they ended up acquiring the business and Host Hotels was part of the Marriott family for several years. Now, about a decade later, in 1993, Marriott International decided they wanted to take their corporation in a different direction, and so they decided to spin off Host. So they spun off Host in 1993. Now, at the time, Host Hotels had about 24,000 rooms within their uh, within their capacity, and The new corporation, they kept operating concessions at airports, but they eventually spun that business off to shareholders just a couple years later in December 1995. So at this point, at the end of 1995, Host Hotels is truly just a hotel company. And then they set off on an aggressive growth plan after that. In 96, they increased their footprint from 24,000 rooms, or excuse me, I think it was... uh, a little bit more than that because they had 24,000 in 1993. But by 1996, they had 37,000 rooms. So in just two years time, they increased their total capacity by a third. So they got rid of almost all of their limited service hotels and went all in on full service hotels. So the company was forming and shifting around this time to become pretty much a pure play hotel company. And then they kept going. In 1998, they spent $1.5 billion to buy an additional 12 hotels, which that represented about 5,000 rooms, from the Blackstone Group. And with that move, they were able to diversify into different brands, such as Ritz-Carlton and Hyatt. So basically, they started out as Marriott, right? So they were operating Marriott hotels. Well, this gave them the opportunity to operate different brands. So that was pretty nice. Now, by 1999, they qualified as a REIT. So remember, that stands for Real Estate Investment Trusts. So it's a specific type of entity that's different, a little bit different than like a common stock. It's specifically associated with with real estate. So they qualified as a REIT by 99. And then by 2006, they had over 67,000 rooms. And that's almost double the number that they had a decade earlier. So they were definitely growing fast. Now, since then, they've made a few adjustments. And actually, they've made a lot of adjustments. <laughs> so we know what happened in 2007, 8, 9. Things were really bad with the economy globally, really, especially in the United States. And definitely bad for real estate. It wasn't that great. But the company recovered. And in 2000. 
2012 and 2013, the company got their debt upgraded to quote-unquote investment grade by the rating agencies of Moody's and S&P. So if you're not aware, there are rating agencies that basically grade companies. They kind of give companies a report card based on how they feel they have stabilized their operations. So how risky are they? And usually this is looked at from a credit perspective, like a bond. So it's kind of like the company's credit score now that I think about it. (laughs) So these firms, S&P, which stands for Standard & Poor's, and Moody's, they're some of the bigger rating agencies. And so by this time, they rated their debt, they rated the bonds for host hotels and resorts to be investment grade. And that's a big deal because once you're considered investment grade, that means that a lot of institutions can start buying securities related to that company because there's some level of stability that is implied by by that uh, by that rating. Now, you have to be a little careful with this. Back around 07, 08, there were some discrepancies between what rating agencies were calling good or investment grade and what actually was investment grade. That's kind of a whole topic for another discussion. But overall, though, the rating agencies, from what I've seen anyway, they do do a, a good job at actually saying you know what companies are risky riskier than others at least from a relative perspective in the in the very small amount of time that i've actually looked into that but nonetheless this was important because it allowed host hotels and resorts to kind of improve their standing and also as a company if you have investment grade debt basically that means that you can usually borrow money at lower interest rates which is good for you as as a corporation you can pay less money in interest expense when you're trying to acquire another company or you know bolster your cash reserves or whatever the case may be so the other major thing that happened in hosts history is in 2018 they sold off a bunch of their properties they actually sold off almost all of their international properties and then reinvested in their properties based in the united states So before they actually had properties kind of scattered across the globe. Most of them were still in the United States, but they decided in the last couple of years to really focus in on the U.S. market. And so that brings us to today. What is the business overview of Host Hotels and Resorts now? Well, Host Hotels and Resorts is the largest lodging real estate investment trust in the United States. And they're the largest owner of Marriott Properties and the largest third-party owner of Hyatt Hotels. So that means they own a lot of properties, right? Well, they don't actually own quite as much as I thought they did. They own 80 properties. And here, here I am thinking they own like several hundreds of properties, but really it's just 80 properties. But those properties are usually big and really nice properties. So that comprises about 46,500 rooms. So definitely a lot of rooms. And then, as I mentioned, they really focused in on the U.S. market. So they only have five properties out of those 80 that are outside the U.S., and those are in Brazil and Canada. So most of these are still Marriott properties. About 75% are Marriott, about 17% are Hyatt, and then 6% are other brands. And then the remaining, I think it's 2 or 3% left, are just unaffiliated with, 
with certain brands. So definitely the vast majority of their properties are still considered Marriott. Now there are three different types of hotels that they own. So you can think of a hotel as, okay, someone stays there. Yeah. But you can divide that single category out into more subcategories in order to understand different things about the actual real estate. So there's three different types of hotels. There's resorts. So, you know, think vacation destination, convention destination hotels. So that's really big in the business world. And then you have high-end urban hotels. So think about hotel located right, right in New York City, right in Manhattan or something like that. That's a high-end urban hotel. So host has a mix of these different types of properties. Now, one thing to think about when evaluating hotels is the occupancy. What is the long-term trend of hotel occupancy? Has it been flat? Has it been up? Has it been down? Well, the good news for this industry is that the long-term trend of hotel occupancy, it's moved higher over the last several decades. Now, there have definitely been some periods of downturns during recessions, but those have been relatively short if you look at the data. So for example, in 1987, the percentage of occupied rooms versus available rooms was about 35%. And then in 2019, just this past year, that number was 66%. So that's about a 4.5% year-over-year growth rate in occupancy rates. So people are definitely using hotels in the long run. So that's, that's good news for this company. So that being said, hey, let's talk about COVID. We got to talk about COVID. If we're going to talk about hotels or travel companies in any respect right now, I think it would be a disservice to you, the listener, if I didn't address this topic, right? So management has stated that if they can sustain about a 10 to 15% level of occupancy, which, I mean, that's kind of a low bar, right? You got one out of every 10 rooms that's occupied. That shouldn't be that hard to do. But nonetheless, that's kind of what's happening right now because of all these restrictions and fears around COVID-19. It's really affecting the travel and leisure industry hard. So nonetheless, management says that if they can sustain that level of occupancy, then economically it actually makes sense to reopen as opposed to closing their doors, meaning that they would lose less money by being open and accepting a little bit of revenue as opposed to just shutting things down completely. So the, the little bit of revenue they would receive would offset their expenses during operations, as opposed to the money that they would save with no revenue closing their doors. So as of June 2020, they were at about 10% occupancy across the entire portfolio of properties. So that's really unfortunate, but that is the reality right now with COVID and lodging. People are not going to hotels right now, at least not that many. But the trends are actually looking up in the past few months, even with the resurgence in cases, there has actually been a little bit of a steadying with hotel occupancy stats. So that's encouraging. Now, one thing I want to talk about is downturns. And when I was researching this company, the company has a really good investor presentation on their website. And one of the things that they talk about is that there are different types of downturns. They're caused for different reasons. So in order to understand those reasons, we have to first fundamentally understand the performance metrics that hotels are judged by. And so let's talk about these different metrics. There are three primary metrics. 
So the first one I think is the easiest to understand. It's occupancy. So when you have occupancy, people are staying at a hotel, right? If you have 98% occupancy, that means 98 out of 100 of your rooms are occupied. Pretty simple, right? So when you have high occupancy, more people are staying at a hotel. Lower occupancy means that less people are staying there. So that's just a metric that just tells you, hey, do you have your rooms filled or not? (laughs) And higher is better. The second metric is called ADR, and that stands for average daily rate. What does that mean? That's the amount of revenue that an occupied room earns per day on average. So basically it answers the question, how much money are occupied rooms making? So if you have a hotel that's at 100% occupancy, that sounds awesome, right? But if your ADR, your average daily rate is really low and you're not able to get revenue per room that's occupied, well, you're not gonna make a lot of money, right? On the flip side, if you have a really high ADR and are able to charge a lot per room, but your occupancy levels are really low, well, you're probably not going to make that much money either. And so you really need both of these metrics working together in order to create a profitable scenario for a hotel. And that brings us to our third metric, which is called RevPAR. Now, RevPAR is basically a shorthand notation for revenue per available room. Revenue per available room. And this is very simply the occupancy multiplied by the ADR. So that indicates how much money is being made at a hotel based on its capacity. And it takes into account occupancy and the per room revenue. So you can imagine you kind of want to optimize these variables to get the highest rev par that you possibly can if you're a hotel owner. So now let's take those concepts and apply them to hosts. So in the recession of 2001, average daily rate was actually the primary cause of the decline. This means that people were still booking rooms, but they were doing so at lower prices than typical. Now contrast that with the recession of 2009 where occupancy was the primary cause of the decline. So the hotel could still charge reasonable rates, but they couldn't book as many people. Not as many people were showing up to actually stay the night in their rooms. So you can see that there's these different variables that come into play with a hotel. And ideally we want both occupancy being very high and the average daily rate to be high. So now let's turn our attention to what management has been trying to do to get a higher rev par. Well, in the past few years, management has been asset recycling, so to speak. They've been selling these lower rev par hotels and then they've been buying higher rev par hotels. So theoretically, at least, this increases the quality of the overall portfolio. Why? Because the overall mix is more upscale. I mean, if you have a Ritz-Carlton as opposed to a Motel 6 or like a Courtyard Marriott or something like that, you're going to be able to charge more money per room. And hopefully those rooms will have high enough occupancy to where that product between the two variables ends up leading to a higher rev par. So that's the idea. So that could be a benefit because luxury spending also tends to bounce back more quickly at the end of recessions. I mean, let's face it, people with money, they want to spend it, right? So if you are 
exiting a COVID-19 situation and you're an affluent family and you want to travel, you're going to travel as soon as you're able to, right? You're not going to wait because you have the money to go spend at these higher end properties. It's the lower end properties, I think, that take longer to recover because people just don't have the money to spend on those discretionary type of items until times get really good again. So there's a difference there. And management seems to want to continue this trend with the moving toward upscale. So from their 2019 annual report, they said, quote, we constantly are evaluating both single hotel and hotel portfolio transactions to acquire iconic upper upscale and luxury properties that we believe have sustainable competitive advantages. Similarly, we intend to continue our capital recycling program with strategic and opportunistic dispositions, end quote. Okay, so in summary, we're trying to get <laughs> as high-end properties as possible, and if we have to sell our lower-end properties to do so, then we're gonna do that. That's basically what they're saying. So management is moving in this direction. So now let's turn our attention to the financials. So for the sake of simplicity, I'm only gonna be comparing two years of data, 2012 and 2019. And the reason I'm doing this is because I wanna look at the long-term trends. What are the long-term trends of the numbers with this business? Because we don't need to get too bogged down in the weeds when we're taking a first-pass look at a business about all these different line items. We just wanna look at the big picture. How have they been performing historically? So first, what does a top line look like? What do sales look like? Well, in 2012, the company had $5.3 billion in sales. And by 2019, that number increased to $5.5 billion in sales. So basically, the top line didn't really grow. But it didn't fall either. It held pretty steady. So that's something to take note of. Now, what about the net income? Well, if we just look at the net income numbers, it looks like very distorted. It looks like the company went from $63 million to over $920 million over a seven-year period. But the thing is, this is a real estate investment trust. We cannot judge the business performance just based off of net income. A more appropriate metric, as we discussed in previous episodes, is to look at funds from operations. So funds from operations accounts for things like depreciation, amortization, and in this case, gains from selling hotels in the portfolio. So let's look at adjusted funds from operations. You can think of this as the profit metric for a real estate investment trust. Well, in 2012, the company had about $830 million in adjusted funds from operations. And in 2019, that number was $1.3 billion. So, hey, not bad. They actually increased. Now, on a per share basis, they went from $1.10 per share to $1.78 per share, which is about a 7% annual growth rate. So this is pretty respectable, I think, especially for the fact that sales didn't go anywhere. Hey, <laughs> they were able to do something, right, for the shareholders. Now let's look at the balance sheet. The company had just over $400 million in cash, and that increased to $1.5 billion. So definitely good on the cash position increasing. And then likewise, good news on the debt front as well. They had about $5.5 billion in debt, and that decreased to just under $4 billion, about $3.8 billion in total debt. 
So they've been slowly paying off debt, slowly increasing their cash reserves. Nothing too radical, but seems to be well managed from this perspective. And then from the cash flow perspective, how does that look? So the operating cash flow, remember, this is money going into and out of the business, actual money changing hands. So the company had over $780 million in operating cash flow in 2012, and that increased to over $1.2 billion. So this cash flow growth is mirroring the funds from operations growth, which is great. That means that the business is actually making more money over time. Not a huge amount more, but they are making more. Now, as far as the financing cash flow goes, remember, this is where the dividends come from, the share buybacks or increasing or decreasing debt. That's where you see those line items on the cash flow statement is in the financing cash flow section. So they had about $300 million go out in financing cash in 2012 and about $1.3 billion go out in 2019. And a lot of that does have to do with dividends. So let's look at that specifically. So they went from about $190 million going out in dividends to $630 million. So that is a big increase in the dividend payout. I mean, we're talking about triple the dividend payout. And how does that look on a per share basis? It's basically the same. So the dividends per share was 30 cents annually in 2012. And in 2019, it was 85 cents. So that's really great. If we look at the track record, though, we can notice some unique nuances here, though. The dividends increased dramatically from 2012 to 2016. Like management was just like raising the dividend like crazy every year. But then from 2016 to 17 to 18 to 19, the dividend actually remained at 85 cents per share. So management was like, okay, we need to we need to pump the brakes a little bit and not get get too uh, get too crazy with it. And you know what? I respect that because uh, because sales were not really increasing that much, so they knew that they needed to kind of rein things in a little bit. So I think that was that was prudent on management's part. But hey, really nice dividend growth in the meantime. If you owned shares back in 2012 and held them to today, you would have gotten a lot of dividends and some really nice raises for being a shareholder. Now, what about share buybacks? How do the shares outstanding look? So as you could probably tell if you've been following along through the dividends and dividends per share, you'll notice that there isn't a huge difference as far as ratio-wise between the numbers. Well, that basically indicates that the shares outstanding hasn't really changed that much. So they went from about 726 million shares outstanding to just over 705 million shares outstanding. And this is over a seven-year period. So they've been buying back shares here and there, but not really that much. The good news is they haven't really been diluting the share base either. So that is a good thing. And actually, management has stated that even though they could dilute shares in order to help raise money during this COVID crisis, they would look more so at a mix of options. So supposedly things like raising more money in debt and maybe selling some properties before they necessarily went ahead and issued equity. So no guarantees, of course, you know, management can change their mind whenever they want, but it seems like they're more partial to keeping this share account in check, even during these times. All right, now let's, let's talk about the valuation and some closing thoughts here. So remember this metric REV par. So this is really important. Now REV par growth has been stagnating. 
I mean, it's been stagnating for the last few years, and it's really been hurting the industry overall from what I've researched. And basically what this means is the supply has outstripped the demand. There's too many hotels and not enough people who want to stay at them. I mean, there's definitely people who want to stay at them, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying from a relative perspective, the revenue per per room is not really going up that much. The growth isn't hasn't been there overall in recent years. In spite of this, the company has managed to grow adjusted funds from operations at 7% annually. So, hey, not too bad for a company who has seen no revenue growth over the better part of a decade. And I think, personally, this points to the fact that host management is pretty good at controlling costs. They seem pretty tight-fisted when it comes to managing their expenses. So even though revenue growth has been non-existent, the reshuffling of assets into more luxury-oriented properties, to me, it seems like a good move. I mean, luxury goods, they tend to be able to maintain higher margins, and that is especially important as the company tries to bounce back from this COVID crisis. Now, I also like how the balance sheet has clearly improved over time. I mean, it's pretty obvious to see cash has gone up a modest amount, but total debt has been lowered, and that's great. So the shares right now are trading at around $11 per share. They came down significantly with the, with the market crash a few months ago, and they, they've bounced back a little bit, but not really that much, not nearly as much as the broader market has. And we've seen this trend with companies we discussed before, like the other REITs, Mace Rich, and Simon Property Group. So based on 2019's numbers, based on those adjusted funds from operations numbers, $11 per share is pretty cheap. That's only six times from a price to funds from operations perspective. But alas, we're not in 2019 anymore. We're in 2020 or whenever you're listening to this. But right now I'm recording this in 2020. So it's kind of hard to predict what the earnings are going to look like in 2021 and 2022. I mean, even in spite of this, I do think that there are good chances that the company will return to profitability as long as they can keep their occupancy rates going up from that 10% base, you know, get that up to 30, 40, 50%, then things will start turning around for real. But they really do need to get that occupancy rate up. So from a dividend perspective, as you might expect, the dividends are suspended for now because of the crisis. But assuming they return to normal at some point, here's something interesting. You're looking at $0.85 cents per share on an annual basis. And the way that this company structures their dividend, they structure it as four quarterly payments of $0.20 cents per share plus a $0.05 cent bonus payment at the end of the year. So, hey, get a little Christmas bonus with this stock. Now, that's equivalent to a 7.7% yield at these prices. Now, granted, this yield is not likely to grow anytime soon once it's reestablished. I mean, hey, revenue is still flat, right? But hey, it's nearly an 8% yield on your money in cash. So that is kind of intriguing. So I would also keep in mind that, hey, yeah, it looks like a really big, juicy yield once the dividends come back. But this is a REIT and you will have to keep tax rules in mind. So just remember that. So I think that management's prudent actions over the last several years to deleverage and improve the portfolio mix of the company, I think that's going to help hosts survive through the storm and prosper in the years ahead. Now, I don't expect amazing revenue growth in the medium term. I really don't. I, I don't know enough about the economics and the industry to be able to have an opinion on that yet. But 
I think that the company knows how to make money. They know how to generate profits, and that counts for something, even when the revenue isn't growing that much. So I can respect that. So yeah, this seems like the kind of company that once things do stabilize again, will provide pretty consistent, reliable income. They are the largest lodging REITs in the United States, and they have a lot of properties and a lot of rooms. Uh, they do depend really heavily on the Marriott brand name, so their, fates, their fate is tied in many ways with Marriott International. But, uh, but yeah, they have a decent income stream and decent cash flow coming in uh, during normal times. So I think... Uh, Basically, it comes down to how do they bounce back out of this crisis? Can they get from 10% occupancy up to 30, 40, 50% occupancy where they can start to show signs of life again and show real profitability? So that remains to be seen. But overall, I do like what I see at host. I wish their revenue, man, I just really wish there was some kind of revenue driver out there. But who knows? Maybe in a different environment, they'll be able to raise prices sufficiently with their luxury properties um, and in order to increase their margins. But, but we'll see. So that's what I got for you today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, learning about host hotels and resorts. I had some fun researching it. I hope you had as much fun listening to my thoughts as I had thinking about them and uh, analyzing them and coming up with, with different things to talk about. So yeah, hope you enjoyed that. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me on Instagram. Send me a direct message at Stock Storyteller. That's at Stock Storyteller. Or send me an email at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. Either way, I love to hear from you. Love to have a conversation about anything, really. Whatever you're dealing with as an investor, I want to know what you're struggling with. I want to know how I can help you. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help you become a better investor. So, Thank you in advance for your message. And also, if you enjoy the show, if you're a fan of the show, one thing could really help me out, and that is to share the show. Share the show with your friends. Share the show with people who you think it would add value to them. If there are other people in your life who you think that these stock stories would be useful, well, let them know. I'd really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next one. Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.